Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport Magazine and Autosport.com, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. It's Wednesday, 21st of July, and today we're going to learn a bit more about motorsport regulation. You can't go racing without some rules, and you can't build a car without knowing the regulations. What opportunities and challenges lay in the evolution of regulations in the global motorsport landscape? What are the required tools and methodologies to address these? Well, check out the newest episode of the Autosport Podcast with AVL Racing experts to find out. Today, I'm joined by Michael Painsett, Skill Team Leader Racing at AVL, and Martin Monshine, Global Business Segment Manager Racing at AVL. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Martin. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Happy to be back. And we like to get into the issues that AVL are experts about. Regulation is something that is uh, talked about very much in all forms of motorsport. So we are going to do that today. And, and often Formula One gets the, uh, the share of attention. But we want to cover off many other uh, different types of motorsport as well. But we'll start with Formula One. Regulation changes are happening a little bit this year and then a little bit next year as well. So in 2021, firstly, they've increased the minimum weight of the car uh, by three kilograms, actually, for this year. So it's 749 now. Um, how does that compare to recent regulation, for instance? And also, how does it compare for our, our listeners in the context of Formula One um, over the years, and perhaps how does it compare to other series as well? Well, if you look at the history of uh, the weight of Formula One cars, the weight has historically been going up uh, quite a bit. Um, going back to 2013, which was the last year where the old uh, natural aspirated V8 engines were used, the minimum weight was at 642 kilos. Um, with the arrival of the hybrid V6 engines, in 2014, the minimum weight was increased by about 50 kilos to 691 kilos. 
which is just attributed to the fact that the hybrid engines are quite a bit heavier than the old power units. Um, since then, obviously, Formula One has added other elements, for example, the wider wheels and tires. The halo has been introduced. For the sake of driver safety, the minimum weight for, for the driver has been increased. So we could see a steady increase of weight. Um, and as you said, Martin, as of now, we are around 750 kilos, which sounds like a very huge step compared to what we had in the past. But uh, as I said, a part of it is coming really from safety measures. A part of it is to gain performance. And if we compare what F1 is doing with other racing series, let's take IndyCar. IndyCar has increased its weight between 2018 and 2020 by about 80 pounds, which is 36 kilograms. And that is obviously mainly driven by the arrival of the aero screen to protect the drivers better. So that's another safety feature that has been introduced. Uh, if we take another series, which is a spec series, obviously Formula 2, between 2018 and 2020, they have gained 36 kilos in minimum weight, which was to a large degree due to the arrival of the new 18-inch wheels and tires, which are quite a bit heavier. Um, we did see in Formula 2 also a fairly big increase between the old car, which was used in 2017, and the new car in 2018. The difference there was 58 kilos, so it's not uncommon for most motorsports categories to gain weight over the years, but it's usually due to uh, safety measures, and also due to performance reasons. So it's not unusual uh, to see what we have been seeing in Formula 1. Now, a key part of AVL's business is being experts in powertrains and the minimum weight of the power unit, I should call it a power unit, of course, that is what it's called, um, has risen as well in, in Formula 1. What are the reasons of increasing the weight of power units in Formula 1? Is it about regulations, stopping manufacturers chasing these tiny, tiny gains, these very exotic and expensive materials, perhaps. Martin? Definitely a combination of, 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 of more than one, one reason. It's maybe we can, we can divide it in, in two aspects. Obviously, it's definitely related to also uh, keeping the cost in check or, or saving or reducing the cost. The usability or the, the choice of uh, which materials can be used uh, for these power units was kind of already limited to some, to some extent, but still... There is some where some areas open where obviously you know some exotic materials also uh, associated for uh, you know being very strong and lightweight uh, have a high cost uh, or price tag associated to it. Uh, but the second uh, the second benefit uh, a higher overall minimum weight has is that the teams are not forced to go to the limit of the strengths of the component to to save material in general anymore. So it can it will also result into you know when they we talk about you know for example pistons and other components um, you know rotating parts uh, where when the weight goes up you know obviously the, the engines become also more reliable uh, which then also aids the the requirements of having less power units throughout the uh, throughout the season per car and then resulting obviously less power units is less cost so essentially it's definitely also mainly targeted to uh, to saving cost, making these power units uh, cheaper in the development and also then in the production, but also more reliable. So it actually has two, two, two benefits for, for the participating teams. I mentioned that AVL are power unit 
specialists, but equally, you are experts at how the rest of the car works as well. And the aero surfaces next year will be a very visual change for fans watching Formula One. Front and rear change, barge boards gone, and the upper surfaces of the uh, the chassis are creating a lot less downforce. But that downforce being recovered in some other ways. Can you talk us through uh, a little bit the, uh, the 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 challenges the teams were going to be facing for this year, but with uh, with COVID pushed on to, to next year, what are the the big challenges that uh, that you feel Formula One is the designers are coping with? Next year's cars will look very different from this year's cars. So a lot of development and effort will go into the 2022 cars. So that puts the teams uh, in front of the problem to say, how much attention am I paying to this year's car versus how much attention am I paying to next year's car? So if, for example, the team decides to put the big emphasis on the 2022 regulations and on the 2022 car, it means that they could potentially lose a bit of their momentum for 2021, but they might be in a better position for 2022. So it's a bit of a strategic element, really. And as you said, uh, especially the error regulations will be very, very different. Um, The main purpose uh, or a dedicated aim for 2022 was to make the racing better, make the overtaking easier by making it easier to follow another car in a quite close distance without losing too much downforce. Um, So the solution that the rulemakers came up with was to say, okay, let's create a bigger percentage of the downforce through the floor, through the underbody, and the lesser percentage through the bodywork and the wings. So the floor-generated downforce is a lot less sensitive to following another car closely compared to the downforce created by the upper surfaces, by the bodywork. Actually, I've seen some numbers being published where the Formula 1 working group said that the 2019 spec Formula 1 car Falling another car with a distance of one car length has only 55% of its normal levels of downforce available, whereas with the new regulations in 2022, according to the simulations, the following car should have now about 86% of the downforce available. So that should enable the following driver to get closer and to come into a position to attack the car in front of him. That was the target, and they achieved that by um, introducing extensive regulation changes to simplify the bodywork, you mentioned it, Martin, the extremely complex barge boards are gone. Um, The front wing can only consist of four parts starting from next year. The end plate of the front wing will be a lot more simplified than it is this year. And also the front wing will be attached directly to the nose cone and not via some struts. Um, The rear wing will look very, very different. It will have no end plates. It will be wider and mounted higher than currently, just with the aim to reduce the wake that the car is uh, producing to make it easier for the car behind to follow. So I think we can expect uh, a very different look uh, of the cars, while the target was uh, to keep the downforce levels about in the same area as they are right now. Now, this is the part of the podcast where I should mention, for anyone listening for the first time, uh, if they're wondering, why haven't they talked about specific teams yet? And I should say, for those new listeners that have joined us since our last podcast, AVL works with many teams across all forms of motorsport, but including Formula One. Of course, our listeners will appreciate we we can't be talking about the specific customers that you have, but uh, I can tell those people listening that AVL has a lot of extensive experience working with many teams on the current grid. That's all we can say, top secret, hush hush. Let's talk about how far Formula One teams can go in standardized parts so 
things that we can see, crash structure, halo, uh, things like that, but also things like brake parts. How far can Formula One push standardization whilst maintaining what some people often call the spirit of F1 and how it aligns with budgets and the fan interest as well? Uh, Martin? Essentially, it's always a, you know, a very fine balance between uh, you know how innovative to keep a sport, to keep it interesting for participating manufacturers, but also keep the cost under control. So you want to have a, a big playing field and a lot of manufacturers essentially that are participating while also being competitive, keeping the, the fan, the spectator in mind that there is exciting races and not just, you know, start to finish leaders and, and, uh, and predictable races on who most likely are going to win, as we unfortunately have seen in the most recent years. Where there's a lot of room is, you know, there's areas that are not so visible in terms of performance differentiation than others. And I think there, you know, there's already been some parts, you know, when you think about there might be standardized uprights, things like that, that don't meet the eye, you know, immediately when you see a car on the track as, as, as key performance differentiator. But some areas still need to remain open, you know, in order to that the teams or that the, especially the OEMs can promote, you know, their technologies or their there are indeed competences that are also visible to the spectator to see, you know, why is this team faster than the other or why does it has done a better job? Um, for example, brakes is a very, you know, uh, key or very visible performance differentiator because we, you know, obviously we've seen, you know, that certain teams have, you know, very good brake performance, very late brake points, uh, very reliable brakes where others might struggle a little bit, but this is also part of the show and also something where, you know, that you can promote uh, gearbox, for example, might not be this visible uh, to the to the outside, but it's one a very key component. So if you have problems there, it's essentially a race ending, a race ending uh, event. So it, it's really just to keep the, the key areas open, to keep the manufacturers interested, while closing down a lot of areas that might not be that big of a different, uh, differentiator in order to keep the cost under control. So it's a it's a fine line. Um, and, you know, we are confident that the regulators find a good mix between it, but I think it's necessary in order to make sure that, that the big ones don't escape too, too, too far ahead, but also making sure that there's still a, a viable case for, for, new, for, for, new, enter, uh, for new interests on uh, teams to come in. And, and all the, the, the large teams, all the teams have access to things like wind tunnels and CFD and increasingly artificial intelligence. But then again, so does a company like AVL. What's the impact of how teams are developing with the traditional tools, but also how are they using future technologies as well? The regulations have already limited the amount of time that teams can spend in wind tunnels. And the same applies for the CFD calculations, for the number of CFD hours that teams can, can work with. Um, so long gone are the days where teams would um, use two full-scale wind tunnels 24-7. Um, that has, that's really a thing of the past. So therefore, efficiency is really the key here. Um, you need to be very efficient with your testing. You cannot afford to waste any wind tunnel runs or CFT hours. So you have to have a very clear plan in place to say, this is what I want to investigate. This is where I think I can gain the most performance. Um, and this is even more emphasized with uh, what they call the uh, sliding scale system for wind tunnel and CFT testing, where the 
amount of aerodynamic testing is also depending on where you finished in last year's Constructors' Championship. Now, for example, for 2021, Mercedes, having won the 2020 Constructors' Championship, can conduct uh, 36 wind tunnel runs per week, while the team in P10 can conduct 45 runs per week. So that's uh, a significant difference already now. And for 2022 onwards, the number of runs for the front runners will be further reduced from uh, 36 runs per week. This will be reduced to 28 runs per week, while the P10 team can still uh, conduct, I think, 46 runs per week. So that makes a fairly big difference. And this also serves to making the playing field a bit more level by uh, trying to avoid that the big teams, the ones that have the big budgets, can run further away by conducting more wind tunnel testing uh, as opposed to the teams further back. Um, and I think this will be very interesting to see how this is going to affect uh, the competitive advantage of, of the top teams. Bottom line is really efficiency in, in testing is becoming more and more important. Um, as you know, for the powertrain testing, limitations have already been introduced as well. It's going to be very interesting to see how the teams are going to cope with that. I have to ask about the budget cap, and this just could be a case of, in your opinion, rather than uh, absolute fact. But with a budget cap for car performance, how much can that really change the order of the grid, do you think? This will obviously have you know, the main effect on the, the bigger, high highly funded teams. I, I think... I don't know where to exactly draw the line, but probably you know, for the for the second half of the grid, you know, this is the the, the range they operated within already anyway, so not much will change there. But it will have an effect on on, on the big teams, as said, um, because um, obviously they already have a lot of tools and and, and performance differentiating uh, methods uh, in place, but. Um, obviously, you know, in terms of personnel, they have to scale back, which means that they have either to do more in the same amount of time or the usage of tools, or they have to do uh, achieve the same that they did now with, with less means available. It will be also, again, that's also mentioned uh, from Michael before, with the wind tunnel, you know, we need to improve the efficiency, not just as, as, as the R&D target and of the, of the car or of the, the powertrain or whatever, but also of your methodologies, the ways you go about things. So it, it's, it's, it will be help to get the teams, you know, be leaner, even more efficient, make better usage out of tools. And we also, you know, obviously in, in order to, to, to do and provide you know, also benefits on the systems that we provide and that we do in essentially the same helping the teams to achieve more results in the same amount of times, for example, on, on testbed systems or in simulations to make sure that every every minute or every hour that the, the, the engine or any component is, is, is tested, there is uh, there's no data or no runtime that's wasted, that everything's uh, prepared, every sensor is functioning so really to make sure that you are as efficient as possible because obviously we've already, you know, the introduction of uh, runtime limitations for, for powertrain testing. This was also a, a start, you know, also on the, the power unit side to, to make sure that, you know, these efficiencies goes up and that the cost come down because of limited testing and the limited amounts of engines required to do those tests. So essentially it will put a bigger emphasis uh, on increasing efficiency, both on simulation methodologies as well as testing, to make sure that uh, you still stay ahead uh, on the competition, even with less means available. 
as Martin said, the bigger teams, they cannot uh, throw huge amounts of manpower and material at all sorts of topics anymore. They will also be forced to prioritize in a way. Um, simulation is obviously a very good way to do that because what the teams need to find out is, okay, what are the sensitivities of different topics or parameters? So you need to set up a priority list of development items that should bring you the biggest delta lap time per euro spent because the spending will be limited and therefore everyone needs to adapt to that. Well, let's look into the future a little bit and uh, gaze at the stars and look at future fuels. What are some of the options that could be on the table. It's always hard to predict the future, but what's it looking like? The future of alternative fuels, especially for F1, will be one of the, the vital and key aspects uh, for them to to attract new manufacturers. Um, and it will be a key differentiator in terms of uh, innovative uh, racing platform compared, for example, to uh, the fully electric like the Formula E's or other forms of hybrid racing, which now becomes more and more also, as we will hear later in the podcast, you know, for example, in, in the US uh, racing series. Why it's also very important for, for Formula One to, to engage in this topic is in the future of our mobility mix, as we already see, there will be not a single answer on what the, the preferred or the dominant propulsion, propulsion form uh, of the future will be. Obviously, we'll see there's a big increase now. I think COVID has even accelerated it introduction and the increasing market shares in, in e-mobility and in, in pure e-mobility. There's other, uh, they still have limitation in terms of range and also availability in uh, the required time and the power for, for to, to uh, recharge your batteries. And also there's other sectors like, you know, long distance, you know, trucking and, and other features where we need to look at other options as well. And I think uh, with the uh, introduction of the hybrid or synthetic fuels, which already will start with a 10% content uh, within uh, this season and then up to ideally 100%, you know, until 2025. This will be a very attractive feature for OEMs and fuel and loop companies alike to see, you know, how, how can gains uh, in, in these technologies then also be transferred, uh, first of all, back into the you know, general passenger car field but also increase the acceptance and the visibility to the audience uh, for these technologies, I think will be one, uh, one aspect where they can still uh, lead the way again, which is what F1 is always all about. And then also, of course, leading the way then to trip for these technologies then to also transfer to other race series once it's, uh, once it's established in, in, this, uh, uh, in the F1 platform. Well, you mentioned e-mobility and electrification was a, uh, a, a big interest to so many people, so much so that Formula E was launched. And it, it, it seems still, to me at least, such a new series, and yet we're already talking about the Gen 3 cars. Now, is the rate of development in Formula E making it one of the most exciting and dynamic developing motorsports in terms of the powertrains for instance you know the 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 pit stops of the car changes have gone there's more power there's more storage there's the same weight of car does that make it a very exciting sport to follow and to to work in for you as well i think martin the the steps that formula e has taken within the last few years a fairly short time from actually are very impressive just looking at, for example, the, the battery technology in the, the Generation 1, the energy density was at 88 watt-hours per kilogram of battery weight. 
Whereas now in generation three, we are talking about 180 watt hours per kilogram. So this is more than double. So there you can see that a lot of development has gone into developing the batteries. But then on the other hand, e-mobility, the whole technology behind this is still very young. Uh, when it was introduced in, in Formula E, um, the technology was really in its infancy. And typically with new technologies, it develops very quickly initially. But then at some point uh, later on, a certain saturation sets in. That means the gains that you can achieve get smaller and smaller over the time. Formula E is not, not there yet. Uh, the gains they are making are still very, very impressive. And that's why I think Formula E is indeed at the sharp end of the development speed. For example, what is done in Formula One, if you think of the hybrid power units uh, that have been introduced in 2014, they have also made some very, very impressive steps, although it might not have been as visible to the outside as, as it has been in, in Formula E. Of course, Formula One is going to introduce an engine freeze uh, from the end of this year, 2021. But then if you look into other racing categories, I'm very curious to see how the new rules for the hypercars in the World Endurance Championships will affect the competition between the manufacturers. And I expect to see rather rapid evolution there as well, especially given that the regulations give the manufacturers quite a lot of freedom which system layout they are going to choose. And I think this is going to be exciting to watch. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Uh, you mentioned recharging in Formula E just a moment ago. The speeds suggested are not achievable with current technology. So what are the implications of that? Now, the best road cars around at the moment are around 270 kilowatts. That would be the Taycan and the e-tron, um, GT, Tesla slightly less. But commercial systems, of course, are targeting much faster charge rates, uh, but they have much bigger batteries. Um, and then there are organizations, the likes of Charin here in Europe, of which AVL is a member with the, 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 the CCS protocol. Tell us about that idea of recharging a Formula E car. Let me tell people now, it won't be a quick 5-second, 10-second pit stop like we see in Formula 1. It will be a lengthy stop. But can they get to that stage, do you think? Well, I think at first you need to, to solve the technology challenges associated with it. Recharging at those power levels that you mentioned, Martin, 600 kilowatts or even 1 megawatt, is a massive challenge because you're trying to squeeze an incredibly huge amount of energy into the battery within a very, very short time span. Um, this uh, puts the battery developers in front of some issues. Uh, one of them, for example, being the cooling to make sure the battery is not overheating. Batteries are very sensitive to temperatures, as we know. But then also the, the cables, the connectors, um, the safety for all the crew members involved. So I think this is going to be... Um, very interesting to see how they're going to solve it. But I think it, it can be achieved. Uh, Formal E has communicated that they are targeting those pit stops to recharge for the Generation 3, which is going to be introduced in 2023. If we are looking a bit into the numbers, let's assume we are recharging with uh, the 600 kilowatts and we stop for 30 seconds, which is already a quite long pit stop, as you said, Martin. Uh, we can add in the range of 4 to 5 kilowatt hours into the battery, which is about 10% of the original battery capacity. So it's not like in Formula One where when refueling was still allowed, you would completely fill up the tank within a couple of seconds, but you can only add a fraction of the original energy of the capacity of the battery. So I think this is also going to be a strategic element of the race where the teams and the drivers have to figure out if the additional energy uh, that we, that they are gaining through the pit stop compensates for the time lost during the pit stop. 
and in the end, the races will still be energy limited. So the focus on energy efficiency and how to spend the energy in the best way to achieve a good lap time will still be at the forefront of what Formula E is going to do. And of course, as that conversation with the fans as well uh, is focusing on energy use, uh, recuperation of energy is interesting and, and uh, or, or regen braking, as EV drivers might might call it. Well, the plan is to have no rear brakes on the Gen 3 cars and brake by wire on the, the front axle. AVL are braking experts. What are some of the things that uh, need to be solved with this solution? Well, obviously, it's all about, you know, harvesting everything under braking that's possible and adding, you know, you know, an electric front axle for recuperation. This is, you know, a, a major, a major step towards that goal and also very relevant um, for how, you know, EV production cars will, will utilize this available energy. But it also is a quite a, a challenge for the teams because from where they are now to where they have to go, Throughout the last years, you know, they, they optimized, you know, the way they characterized the brakes, you know, how to de- deploy their energies uh, and their strategies and so forth. If now this is, you know, a, a major curveball to, to all that they've done in the past, which they have to start from scratch, which obviously puts a lot of demand on, you know, the way they, uh, they figure out their strategies, their, their models, their vehicle simulation and powertrain models in order to, to already try in the virtual world to identify what the best strategies are and that then obviously coupled to also more testing to validate these uh, these simulations and also to create you know the, the the models for the mechanical front brake in order to to optimize the brake by wire system a lot of uh, development work ahead of them a major step towards also uh, being more efficient and, and utilizing really the, the, the energy available and obviously also a very interesting fact to know that obviously no mechanical friction brake on the rear axle anymore, which means also the front axle mechanical brake, uh, friction brake still needs to be, you know, a fail-safe device uh, to make sure that, you know, for some odd reason, you know, the, the region functionality doesn't work. It still uh, allows the, the proper deceleration and stoppage of the car if required, even though it might not be utilized that much during the operation. So keeping the temperatures to, to where they need to be uh, while still having the desired state of charge and the regen, uh, like I said, a lot of challenges that need to be solved, but obviously that's what racing is all about. And um, also in AVL, we have a lot of expertise you know, that we also gained and also utilized to work with the teams in the past. And I'm pretty sure that we will uh, be able to also help again with these challenges that come that lay ahead for the, the Gen 3 layout. Well, we, we love talking about these technologies uh, as fans of motorsport and uh, and for you guys working in the industry. Let's talk about a term that some of our audience may not be fully familiar with, and that is Le Mans hypercar. What is uh, the kind of hybrid powertrain that we can be, see be used in Le Mans hypercar and uh, an endurance racing? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the Le Mans hypercar um, essentially will be the successor of the current uh, P1, uh, the top tier series in the World Endurance Championship. And it actually offers quite some interesting aspects. Obviously, um, you know, we still know a couple of years ago, you know, the, this incredible uh, Le Mans uh, LMP1 hybrid machines and the battles between uh, Toyota, uh, Audi and Porsche where they had like really extremely sophisticated powertrains uh, with various different uh, hybrid system setups and, and engine layouts, but with the downside that obviously the cost have been almost at that Formula One level. And this was like a 
development battle between these these, these manufacturers. Um, I think with the Lamar hypercar series, they they still try. There's a good chance that they achieve something similar, but at a more reasonable cost. Um, it's still uh, it offers a lot of freedom uh, in terms of powertrain choice. Um, so you can you know, the, the the combustion engine layout is is free to choose, um, and you still can also opt to have or not have a hybrid system, so it's, it's not even mandatory. And beyond on the hybrid system, it's not mandated on where it will be. So you can use a re-axle MGU, but also an additional, or, or instead of it, uh, a front axle MGU, um, like, uh, like an electric front axle. So a lot of different options to, uh, to achieve a, a certain target performance level, which will be around 500 kilowatt, and it will be a homologated, uh, you know, by the different teams to keep the cost in check, but still, like I said, uh, offers a lot of degrees for freedom to attract uh, different layouts and with the different layouts, also different manufacturers, as we have already seen, you know, some of the ones that are already committed, most likely will run the hybrid powertrain, but others already uh, declared that they will run an ICE only. So this will uh, keep the, 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 the interest element of, you know, which, which layout uh, will, uh, will uh, succeed obviously it's always a balance between you know weight uh efficiency range um so i'm sure we will see the one or other iterations throughout the first and second season where there might be changes in these strategies but all in all uh, again a, a great platform in order to to uh to keep innovation and, and, and flexibility in there but still trying to maintain it uh, and making sure that uh, that there's a lot of participation and uh, an interesting uh, uh, playing field. Regulations can sometimes be about bringing new manufacturers in. Regulations can sometimes be about keeping manufacturers from leaving. In what ways are these hybrid powertrains similar to the way that other series are being regulated, or maybe how are they different from the way that other series are being regulated? And the you know the the aim of these regulations. Here, the, the, the way it's, it's regulated is not about saying, you know, what you precisely can or can't do. I mean, obviously, there's boundaries, conditions that need to be met. For example, the, the maximum power of the hybrid system is, is capped at uh, 200 kilowatts. Uh, the locations uh, or, or the, the amount of different hybrid systems, you can just have one and not multiple, like, for example, in, in Formula 1 or in the old uh, LMP1H category, where you can have you know, also two hybrid systems. It's really homologated around uh, uh, a minimum weight and the target performance in order to keep the you know the power to weight ratio equal. Therefore, to keep everything else uh, kind of like a little bit more flexible to keep that, uh, that interest uh, for for from the different manufacturers to to race with what they seem or what they uh, find to be the the optimum layout um, and. Uh, Again, within these boundary conditions, if you, even if you said, okay, you know, for example, in Formula One, there's no, no power cap. Obviously, the one that does the best job has the highest power, as we've seen in the past, and obviously gives you a major advantage. But there's still a lot of uh, uh, elements that can be optimized, even though the, the target power level is, 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 is kind of like regulated. It's about, you know, you know how you lay it out uh, to, you know, the, your acceleration out of the corner, you know, either, you know, optimized to certain track layouts um, and also to still have the highest efficient powertrain because of an, uh, an endurance race, 
pit stop amounts and pit stop time is relevant for the for the overall uh, for the to to reach an overall combined lowest time uh, for for in, or, the, or the longest distance throughout a, a race uh, a, a set race time will still be uh, a lot of areas that, that for differentiation keep it interesting and and uh, and have a lot of uh, flexibility for for different manufacturers. So for fans listening in 2022, the, the powertrain for the Le Mans Daytona hybrids, where around the world can we see those in action then? Well, this is one of the things that I think has been tried to be achieved in, in multiple race years, namely in the past, mainly in, in, in the GT with DTM and IMSA and even Super GT to come up with a regulation uh, that allows the you know, same teams and same cars compete in different series and uh, with the LMDH, uh, the IMSA LMDH and the, the, the LMH, Le Mans Hypercar with the ACU regulated series, they came to that uh, agreement to have a, a regulation that would allow both series to compete uh, with, uh, in, you know, in, in, in each other series, if you will. So we, we can see the Le Mans Hypercars uh, competing at the Rolex 24 or throughout the, the entire uh, championship, IMSA championship, if they choose so. And the other way around, we'll also expect the LMDH machines um, you know, compete with the LMH machines in, in, in Le Mans, which is super exciting. Manufacturer powerhouses uh, already announced you know, their particip- participation uh, in the one or the other series. So we have uh, the Porsches and uh, Audis already announced that they will compete in the LMDH or under the LMDH regulations. And now just a recent announcement besides uh, already Peugeot and uh, Toyota, now Ferrari announced that they will also start competing in the uh, Lemo hypercar class in 2023. So already this, uh, this is a proof that you know, the, the formula, you know, both of the series, especially combined, came up with is on the right track to bring a lot of these manufacturers back into the sport uh, and also competing in the same uh, historic uh, races, which is already now excited to see how that will play out. And that's one of the reasons this is such an exciting topic as well. And, and regulation is an exciting topic because it can affect OEMs and, and, and private teams. And, and, and how how do the teams want the regulations to be you know communicated how far in advance in terms of them you know new entrants coming in or some people coming to the end of racing in a certain series how do those regulation changes need to be uh, uh, done by those regulators we need to consider here that regulation changes typically mean additional cost so any regulation change means that uh, teams and manufacturers usually need to spend uh, some money to adapt to them just think of the introduction of the hybrid power units in Formula One in, in 2014. F1 power units are amazing pieces of engineering technology, but at the same time, they are really, really expensive for the manufacturers and the complaints haven't stopped to this day, really. Sometimes, obviously, competitors choose not to spend the extra money mandated by regulation changes and they leave the sport. But on the other hand, regulation changes are the best point in time to enter into a category. Martin already said it, uh, now with the new regulations in, in for the hypercars and the LMDH, um, more manufacturers are coming back into the sport. And that's obviously a very positive thing for the, for the category. The reason is that if you want to enter into a category with rule stability since several years, 
the competitors that are already inside that category have an enormous experience advantage. So if you are coming in as a newcomer, it will be even more difficult to beat them. Regulation changes usually mean that the experience advantage vanishes or is at least greatly reduced. So it's a bit more of a, a level playing field. In addition to the, the technical side, obviously, regulation changes can also reduce the financial hurdle for potential entrants. Just look at, like I said, the hypercar rules that are also aimed at reducing the required budget to run the car significantly compared to the old P1 regulations. And therefore, I think uh, the new regulations are much more attractive for manufacturers looking, getting into the sport. And the recent developments prove just that. Okay, we're going to talk finally about NASCAR, perhaps a, a good example of where regulations need to draw a, a fine line uh, where there's conflict. It's still a very, very popular series. It offers great racing. It uses V8s at a time when many OEMs are moving to electrification, even full electric. How can regulations navigate changes like this for, for every stakeholder concerned? I think especially in NASCAR, you know, for them, you know, the, the history has always been a, a, a key element. And therefore, there was also, you know, in terms of, of revolutionary regulation changes, always some, some reluctance because they have a very dedicated fan base um, that they need to be delicate about. They need to look at, to, you know, what do our manufacturers want and especially also how to attract the you know, younger audiences and the, maybe a new fan base while still keeping their existing hardcore fans uh, entertained as well. Um, so, you know, in, in the, the last years, the, the change has always been very, very minor and sometimes, you know, especially on the powertrain, not very visible to meet the eye. Let's just think back on the introduction of EFI, which was, was uh, not really visible to the audience because, you know, it's it's not a, a visible change and it wasn't a change in much in performance either. But now, you know, I think the pressure and the, from the, just the, the general automotive market and as well as from the OEMs to kind of like make the, the technologies that are utilized uh, in these machines more relevant um, has become more obvious. There obviously has been a lot of changes also in the NASCAR organization, you know, bringing on a lot of new engineers um, and um, party, uh, employees that formerly worked you know, for teams and OEMs. And that now this mindset now also enabled, you know, we see now the next uh, the gen, next gen or gen seven car introduced next year, which has you know, a significantly amount of changes compared to the, the cars we see now on the track. Also, what will follow is that um, a hybrid powertrain formula will come one way or the other because uh, i think also steve Phelps just recently said this, this is how the only way how he sees that a really new oem can be attracted because they in order to for them to justify entering this race series or a significant motorsports program to speak needs to have some relevance also to what they they develop and, and sell for in their road cars what are those specific regulations around lowering costs and being attractive to OEMs? It's more about just painting their badge on the front of the, the next-gen car, right? What, what do those OEMs need uh, from the regulations? Yeah, I think what, what we can see now with NASCAR is that they are actually following the same goals that F1 tries to achieve. Uh, number one, they want to make the racing better. Number two, they want to, to keep the costs under control. 
And those were two main drivers for the regulation changes that we're going to see in NASCAR. Number one, also very similar to Formula One, NASCAR is going to use more spec parts than in the previous generations of cars, which should bring the cost down quite a bit. Um, what's very new for NASCAR is obviously that they're using a spec chassis with a carbon fiber top. So the central element of the car will not be made of metal as it used to be always in the past, but now it will be a carbon fiber top uh, and it's a spec part. The aero is going to be very different. They will have adaptable elements for the different track layouts, for the short ovals, for the road courses, for the very big ovals like Daytona. Uh, for the first time in history, NASCAR will have a rear diffuser. And also, the NASCAR has looked into reducing the aerodynamically generated side force to improve the close racing. One thing that was obviously very attractive for the, for the manufacturers involved is that they will be allowed a brand-specific styling of the, of the surface of the car to allow a better identification with their showroom cars. And what NASCAR is doing, they are putting all the different um, manufacturer cars into the wind tunnel and they balance them aerodynamically just to make sure that uh, on the aero side, the, the playing field is level. There is lots of other changes also to be closer to the showroom cars. For example, NASCAR will use 18-inch tires instead of the 15-inch tires. Um, that will bring about uh, the possibility to accommodate larger brakes. So we can see that the car will be stopping a lot better than they did in the past. Um, and lots of other small changes. So it's really a big pack of regulation changes that all aimed at uh, reducing the cost and keeping the manufacturers interested and potentially also um, bringing a new manufacturer to the spot. We've had a fantastic conversation today about regulation changes and how regulators and the teams and the fans are all part of one system that needs to work together um, for the enjoyment of every fan watching motorsport and AVL at the heart of that, talking to every stakeholder involved. Um, always interesting to get your insights. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Martin. Always a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for hosting us. Uh, until next time. Well, that's our podcast for today. If you'd like to find out more about the things we've been talking about today and many other aspects of their business, you can check out avl.com slash racing. And we'll see you on the next one. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.